Can you hear me now? <laughs> I just, okay. Hello? Okay. All righty, so I'm um, going to read the conflict of interest first, and then I'm going to do my introduction of Dr. Blum. So, um, Dr. Blum, the, I'm Lolly Talibian, by the way. <laughs> Everybody knows me here. I'm famous. Um, <laughs> the, Dr. Blum does not have any financial interests, and he reports that he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of products or devices, and that he attests that he is no, not receiving direct payment from a commercial entity or, uh, with respect to his activity today. So um, it is an honor and pleasure to have Dr. Blum here. Um, I met um, Alan at a practicing, Promising Practices conference in D.C. Um, in 2014, and he was the keynote speaker there. And after his talk, I said, I have to talk to this man. And of course, I lost him in the crowd. It was a really big conference. So at that meeting, uh, the Surgeon General, uh, Acting Surgeon General at the time, Boris Lushniak, had a private kind of talk. And um, we both attended. And uh, after that talk, um, Dr. Blum was the only person who was asking all the questions we all wanted to ask, but we didn't dare to ask. So at that point, I decided to stalk him until I talked to him. And I had to invite him to come speak to us here. Um, his biography and accomplishments and publications are over 61 pages. So there's no way I can do justice <laughs> in, in one page, but I'm going to do it the best as I can quickly. Um, Dr. Blum is the first, first holder of the Gerald Leon Wallace Endowed Chair of Family Medicine at the University of Alabama and is one of the foremost authorities on tobacco use and promotion. He is the director of the University of Alabama Center for Study of Tobacco and Society, which he founded in 1988. In 1977, he founded the Doctors' Care, um, a national organization that pioneered in the purchase of paid satirical advertising to the mass media aimed at countering uh, the marketing of unhealthy products. His early research identified important trends in tobacco industry strategies, including the targeting of women and minorities and sponsorship of sports and arts. Um, he's been invited to more than um, give talks, more than 1,800 lectures in all 50 states in the United States and has published more than 100 um, articles. Um, most importantly, and very close to all of us uh, and our hearts here, um, Dr. Blum has received the Surgeon General's medallion from our very dear Dr. Edward Koop. And this is a quote from Dr. Koop that said once, or wrote once, Dr. Blum has done more against smoking than anyone. That says a lot. He also is the recipient of the American Medical Association's first award for distinguished service on behalf of America's youth in 1990 the National Health Promotion Award from National Coalition of Hispanic Health and Human Services Organization in 1992, the, nation, the first National Public Health Award from the American Academy of Family Physicians in 1992, and an honorary doctor of science from his alma mater, Amherst College in 2006. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Bloom and enjoy the talk. Thank you. Thank you. Best, best introduction I ever got. I wrote that, but uh, <laughs> no, thanks for my mother. Uh, it's so uh, terrific to be back because I have a dear friend, Dr. Lou Kazel, in family medicine, and I'm so honored that he could come today. We work together at Baylor College of Medicine. I do have to warn people that my talks are hazardous to your preconceptions about this whole issue. I mean, how often do you get a family physician coming to talk to a cancer center on smoking? Think about it, you know. But uh, everybody over the age of two has heard about this issue. So what I have to do is create something different, and I want each and every person to go out of the room thinking differently then they came in. So that's why I have to warn you that this talk will be hazardous to your preconceptions. Some people might switch careers after this. But um, there's a play called Morning at 7. It won the Pulitzer Prize. And it opens with this grumpy fellow. It's, it's in the 1940s. And it's in a town that time forgot. It's a lovely little town. And he, you see this front porch. And you see this grumpy guy sitting, talking with his wife. And he's just come back from his doctor. And he's very, very unhappy. And he says, then he listened to my heart with one of those ear things, listened quite a while, didn't say a word, scared me to death. Then he began to thump me, chest, sides, back, all over, still didn't say a word, took my blood pressure, wound a little sack around my arm, pumped a little machine, washed the needle. He did everything you could think of. Examination lasted almost an hour. Then you know what he said? His wife says, what? He says, Mr. Swanson, there's not a thing in the world the matter with you. You've got a good heart, sound lungs, fine stomach, 
I don't know when I've seen a man of your age as well off as you are. Now, what do you think about that? He's just a lousy doctor, that's all. <laughs> she says, well, did you tell him about your neck? He says, of course I did. Said it wasn't anything to worry about. By God, I don't know how a doctor like that gets the reputation he has. Didn't even say I had to give up smoking. She says, well, that's silly. Everybody knows you got to give up smoking. He says, of course they do. I smoke too much. Look at that. It stands to reason when a man gets along in years, he's got to cut down on things like that. Well, I'll see old Doc Brooks tomorrow. He may be old, but I bet he knows enough to tell me to quit smoking. <laughs> so, I mean, there we are. I mean, how much more can we do? I know we have some folks who are, I hate to say if I'm incorrectly, tobacco cessation specialists and tobacco control, you know, I expect the, 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 like the Nixon White House police to come out with uniforms, you know. I don't know why we all aren't tobacco cessation specialists in everything that we do. So that's really what I'm going to do and, and share with you my story, which begins pretty far back uh, when I was a little kid and how I got interested in this um, has to do with my own father, who's in this picture. And uh, he, um, he's the guy who's got his arm on my shoulder. <laughs> I shouldn't have said, where am I in this picture? But there I am. And of course, this was the, the family portrait and he's got his cigarette. So it influenced me quite early on. Um, and another picture when they would go out to a nightclub and, uh, you know, there's the, the cigarette in his hand. This is just what people did. And I know some people are already saying, oh, this sounds like personal. And if you think that's personal, you should see my, my talk on circumcision. Um, but uh, uh, it, it, it's the environment that I grew up in. And uh, my father was a physician who at age 44 uh, got his uh, myocardial infarction that changed my life and his life. He survived, and, but he was very adamant that what did him in was the cigarette smoking that he had started in medical school. At that time, that's what you did. Um, and he and I grew up watching baseball games. And this is a show called Happy Felton's Knothole Gang. And what they would do is they'd have kids come and play, and they'd go catch the balls, and look where they're catching the balls. They're in Ebbets Field. And that's Jackie Robinson. That's the way. Give him a nice hand. Bring him in here. So it was just so blended into what we did that he said, you know, you've got to start recording these. We had a big old audio recorder. Save these things because one day no one's going to believe that smoking and sports could have ever been put together. So I, I should say that I have to read this. I'm disclosure that I have no financial interest. I don't have any money anyway. Uh, I'm not intended to discuss off-label or investigation use of a product or device. I attest that I am not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity respect to this activity. In fact, some people worry about me because, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you might see something like this where doctors were uh, invited to... What cigarette to do you smoke, cigarette doctor? Tens of thousands of doctors in all branches of medicine in all parts of the country were asked that question. What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? The brand named most was Camel. Yes, surveys show more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Smoke Camels, the cigarette so many doctors enjoy. Well, you know, they weren't just on TV, but they would have been in, um, in medical journals. This comes from the Journal of the American Medical Association in 19, uh, I can't read the date up there, but it was around 1950, 51. And um, it's astounding uh, to think that this is what uh, we did. And two thirds of physicians smoked in 1950 when my father smoked. So the questions today to put on the table is, how old is smoking? How long have we had smoking? 4,000 years, very good. 4,122, <laughs> but, but give or take, no, that's good. How, would you, how did you pick 4,000 years? Oh, Egyptians. Well, I was thinking more of this continent, this area around here. We know there was an island called Tobago in the Caribbean. We think that tobacco began being cultivated somewhere in the, the, the South, South America region. But if you look at trade maps from all over the world going back for thousands of years, you can find um, evidence of tobacco. And how do we know that tobacco was smoked? What is the actual archaeologic evidence? What do we dig up and see? Pipes. Pipes. So, in a way, you know, we've had smoking for thousands of years, but we're awfully upset about it right now, and why is that? So what happened between 4,000 years ago, or however many, and, and today? What, what really happened? Well, actually, let me put it a different way. When did we start having any concerns about smoking? And who expressed those concerns, and why? 1950s, just about the time I showed this ad, People were beginning to say, well, wait a minute, this is not good. 
So what happened though between 4,000 years when we didn't really see problems and suddenly in the 50s when we started seeing the epidemic of lung cancer, what happened between then and then? What, what really what, what, uh, occurred to transform people's thinking and say, oh my gosh, we've got a problem here? Say that again. Science. science. What kind of science? What, what was the science? So you're looking at it still, though, in the 20th century. I'm taking you back to say somebody started worrying about this issue even before 1950. When do you think that was? Okay, specifically, who gave the first lecture in the United States on the dangers of smoking? What year would that have been? Simple question. 1940s? What, 1940s, you said? Okay. I didn't know which century you're talking about. How about... Dr. Benjamin Waterhouse, who brought vaccination to America, he was known as the American Jenner, who gave the commencement talk to the graduates of Harvard Medical School on the evil tendency of tobacco and the pernicious effects of the ardent and vinous spirits. He didn't like alcohol either, but in 1804. It's the first known lecture we have in the United States. And he didn't get it quite right. He was very concerned about the effects on the digestive system, but he knew something was wrong about smoking. And he urged all the Harvard students to take their cigars and burn them on the quad. But what happened, seriously, from 4,000 years ago to 1804, and then what has happened between 1804 to the 1950s? What occurred to transform people's concerns about this pleasurable habit into something that was quite concerning? The answer is two things. Cigars and pipes and other ritualistic objects of tobacco were used for thousands of years and they were not inhaled. So it was the inhalation of tobacco smoke that changed everything. It seems a simple concept, but think if you didn't quite figure it out, think how difficult it was even in the 1940s and 50s to figure this out. My father smoked as did two-thirds of physicians and the AMA and all major medical organizations ridiculed people like Dr. Alton Oxner who in the 1930s were saying, look, I'm pulling out lungs from people's chest here. And they all started smoking in World War I. And they were all given cigarettes from the medical societies, from the Red Cross. And we're seeing epidemic versions of lung cancer 20 years later. So he was, but he was ridiculed by physicians for this. So what happened was the inhalation of tobacco smoke, which turned this into something that you got into your lungs, and then also the mass-produced cigarette machine, because up until the 1880s, when the mass-produced cigarette machine was invented, cigarettes were hand-rolled. We think that their origin was the, the, the bums in the streets in Spain picking up discarded cigar butts and repackaging, rewrapping them in newspaper and smoking them, and then inhaling them. So this evolution is a little murky, but we do know that one of the medical discoveries that led to the inhalation of cigarettes was Coke, of Coke's postulates fame. You remember what Coke discovered? the spread of tuberculosis was done by aerosol or spitting. So a number of state parliaments, legislatures and parliaments passed anti-spitting ordinances just at the time the mass-produced cigarette machine was coming in. And so people who'd used cigars and chewing tobacco where they spat were now told that you could inhale the tobacco smoke and not spread germs. And there it was, the confluence, the perfect storm to create an epidemic of lung cancer not much more than 50 years later. And it took until 1962 for this report to come out. And this was the Royal College of Physicians report on smoking and health that was started really by just one or two people that said, we've got to issue a public report on this. And they studied the world's literature and they came up with irrefutable evidence that this was the leading cause of lung cancer. And then it was two years later that the famous Surgeon General's report was released by Alabamian Dr. Luther Terry. Tonight's CBS reports begins with this historic announcement by the Surgeon General of the United States on January 11, 1964. It is a judgment of the committee that cigarette smoking contributes substantially to mortality from certain specific diseases and to the overall death rate. So think about how challenging it is even today to come up with these answers of things. Imagine how our patients are, not, are considering this still an abstract thing. It's still challenging that we have to convince people about smoking. Uh, and it's, we haven't won the war on cancer, on smoking, because um, our patients are coming up with all sorts of rationalizations. But doc, I smoke Carlton because it has only one milligram of tar. And I say, but Helen, if you only stopped and thought about that for just a minute, you would realize that that's, 
what is the filter? But she thinks, she talks like a frog, but she thinks this is healthy or this is safer. Have you ever asked a patient who smokes, by the way, why do you buy a filter? What are they going to say if you, if you do ask them? I don't know many physicians that do ask that because they're too busy wagging their fingers and saying, don't do it. But why, why would people smoke filters? What are the messages that they're getting? Okay. That it's safer. But they'll never say the word, but of course they'll realize that it's safer. And then they realize how silly that sounds. But what is the cigarette filter and when did it appear? The cigarette filter appeared right after the early epidemiologic reports of Hill and Dahl in the late 1940s in the Lancet and the British Medical Journal showing epidemiologic proof, if that's the proper term, that smoking and lung cancer were, uh, it was a causal relationship. And uh, they, um, in translating this to the public, the tobacco companies just sat back, relaxed, and said, let's don't worry about this. Uh, my theory is that somebody had a little oil stain on his fingers from changing the oil filter over the weekend and said, let's just put a filter on it, in with the good air, out with the bad air. And what were the early cigarette filters made of? Asbestos. So <laughs> the whole notion of the cigarette filter is really a, a complete myth, it's, it's total mythology. There is no safer cigarette. What happens, in fact, when you put the filter on a, on a cigarette? Think about when you're taking, remember the old ice cream sodas and you took the straw and you got a piece of ice clogged in, so what'd you have to do? Harder, and that's what you're doing when you're inhaling. And most people to this day do not realize that the filters are far more unsafe. So I actually, if somebody's gonna smoke and I, don't, I can't get them to try an electronic cigarette, that's right, I'm trying to work with people on that. I do uh, suggest, well, at least you could buy a non-filter and they look at you like you're crazy. But honestly, you're, you're doing a terrible thing by, by continuing people on filtered cigarettes. This is a paradoxical approach. Obviously, you don't want them to smoke at all, but if you can get them off the filtered cigarettes, at least that's a first step. The filter is the biggest fraud. And even the American Cancer Society doesn't emphasize this. It's a great vacuum. If you look at literature, nobody's really working at the filter. What about low tar? What does that mean? But I smoke low tar. Tar means, can you define what tar is? It's the most common cause of cancer, but can anyone define it? It's a composite of over 4,000 separate solid chemical poisons. It's the condensate of the smoke. If you liquefy, uh, the, like the tea kettle, and you, you liquefy the steam, you'll, you'll get water. And in this condensate, you get over 4,000 solid chemicals, including 40 known cancer causes at least. And then you have the gases, the formaldehyde, the ammonia, the, the cyanide, the other poison gases. So we have a terrible chemical soup here. And we're saying, that, and people say that smoking's safer. 95% of people who smoke cigarettes are buying filtered cigarettes. We've failed. We've failed at this. We've failed at the demographics, and you'll see that in a second. We have not won the war on smoking. Um, so here's Dr. Terry, and he didn't even make the cover of Life magazine that next week because the back cover was a Winston cigarette ad. And uh, this was my editorial as a high school senior. My first uh, editorial in a, in a newspaper was on smoking because my father had given me a copy of the Surgeon General's report. <laughs> so that's 1964, exactly 50 years ago, uh, 51, where the Surgeon General's report came out. And then I started looking for colleges and, of course, uh, came up here. And uh, first time I've shown this slide because I just found this recently. And there's my dad and me. And, you know, it gets sentimental here, but, you know, um, uh, so it was quite a, uh, this really always has had a place in my heart, and it's really an opportunity to, a great honor to be here. But this is what I would also tune in in 1964. Winston, America's best-selling, best-tasting filter cigarette. Uh, Winston tastes good, like a cigarette should. Can you imagine kids turning into the Flintstones and seeing a cigarette commercial? But this was perfectly normal in 1964, as was this and even more uh, normal. This was the NFL, the leading sponsor of the National Football League, which was emerging. Every night, night in and night out, you would see the Marlboro Mets. Sugarfoot was one of my favorite shows, a cowboy show. This was a sponsor. You get a lot to like with a Marlboro filter, flavor, pack or box. Come to where the flavor is. Famous Marlboro Red or new Marlboro 100s, the Longhorns. Come to Marlboro country. So have you ever heard anyone order a pack of cigarettes? Have you gone into a store and listened in as they go? Do you know how they say? How, do, how does somebody ask for a pack of cigarettes? They say, can I please have a pack of nicotine? Uh, could you give me a pack of cigarettes? Oh, could I have a six pack of alcohol? No, that, how do they do it? Yeah. Well, they don't even say Marlboro. They say, give me a pack of Reds, please. You know, or 
Uh, I like packets of Benson hedges, crushed proof box, light 100s, menthol regular. You know, it's it's like eight descriptors. And we're saying don't smoke. It's not what we should be doing. We should get into their vocabulary. That's why the questions that I ask patients is, why do you buy a filter? How much do you buy? I had a pregnant patient. He didn't want to talk. She didn't want to talk about it. She said, I had a bad childhood. I don't want to talk about my smoke. I don't know what that meant, but I said, how much? I just one question. How much do you buy? And she says, how much do I smoke? I smoke a pack a day, okay? I said, okay, and I calculated what that was. You know, I said it was like uh, $1,100. She said, oh my God, that means my husband's buying 2,200 and we're on welfare. I mean, it was some realization. I do not know whether I was successful in getting her to stop smoking, but the point is I wanted to change the way she thought about this issue. I had a patient who was in the Marines, and he looked at me and he just did a quick calculation. He says, man, I smoked a Porsche. He calculated what he had spent and wasted on. So another way is to look at the inhalation count. What is a cigarette? It's 10 inhalations. So 10 times 20, which is a pack, that's 200 puffs of cyanide carbon. It's like going up to a bus and saying, excuse me, you know, going up to the tailpipe and saying, man, you know, and that's 70,000 inhalations a year. In, in uh, what, 10 years, it's three quarters of a million. So it doesn't take much to get up there. Instead, what do we talk about on rounds? Oh, pack your histories. What does that mean? It's just another intellectual term that doesn't mean a whole lot. So we've medicalized everything. We've medicalized smoking cessation. Come on, everybody ought to be a smoking cessation specialist. So we got television to remove these, but that wasn't really why they went off the air. The, the, we didn't, the American Medical Association, physicians and others didn't get cigarette ads off television. Do you know who got cigarette ads off of television? Anybody remember how cigarette ads were banned from television? Lawyers, representing whom? The least obvious answer you could think of. The tobacco companies, right. Why would they get off TV? Because of the anti-smoking ads that had begun to appear thanks to one attorney named John Banzaff, who was watching TV and seeing all these cigarette ads that you just saw and said, how come there's no application of the fairness doctrine? For every cigarette ad, there should be a counter cigarette. And the Camp Society said, oh, no, 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 we'll lose all our free ads saying give us money if we do that. So they didn't support him. But he uh, filed for the Federal Communications Commission and he won his case. And so suddenly, for three years from 67 to 70, anti-smoking ads started to appear and only the tobacco companies realized that their sales were beginning to plateau. We didn't even know this. And so they went to Congress and said, well, we, we would like to do the good thing in the public interest and get off television. Now, the television broadcast companies, they opposed this. They said, oh, no, 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 we want these. And in fact, uh, when they were asked in the hearings, why do you only show the anti-smoking commercials at 2 and 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning? They said, oh, because we want to get the children when they wake up to go to school. <laughs> so the whole notion of this, it's all bad. It's all bad. There's no heroes. There's no, well, John Banzeff would be. But the, it's just a bad, bad history. Kansas City, bless their heart, honestly. You know, they have one day a year, they have a Great American Smoke Out. How about 364 days a year and give the tobacco industry one day a year? It's just another fundraiser. So this issue has been perverted and it's still not doing very well. Immediately, they were back on television in the form of sporting events. Can you read the warning from the, from the back of the, you know? And this is what I shot off my home television set from Shea Stadium, New York. And this was the journal that I produced, the first theme issue of any journal in the world on smoking, uh, the world cigarette pandemic. I got a letter because this woman was actually 16 years old when she uh, was uh, painted for that advertisement. She'd shown up to New York, she lied about her age, and she became the model that said, after a man's heart, when smokers find out the good things Chesterfields give them. And she died of colon cancer, as it turns out. I got a letter from her husband, out of the blue. And this was the second issue that we did. Uh, we made one into a book called The Cigarette Underworld. I have all the remainders, nobody bought it, nobody cared. It's not an issue that's very compelling. Frankly, it's the cancers that we don't know the cause of that's so compelling. And frankly, I think that's an erroneous philosophy. I know intellectually that might offend people, but gosh, if we've got standing here two, uh, one, fully one-third of all the cancers and we know what's causing them, I don't think we need to devote any less than one-third of our cancer funding to wiping that out. So we've lost 20 million people since 1964. The entire state of Pennsylvania lopped off the map. And we have, in effect, about the same number. So this is from 2004, but we have the same absolute number of people smoking that we had in 64. The population has doubled, but the, the prevalence rate has gone in half, but the number is the same. And the cohort is actually just what the tobacco companies want. Um, they want the, the uh, 18 to 34-year-olds. That's it, and that's who they're getting. They don't need the old geezers who are hacking and wheezing anymore. They only need 
the market that is invulnerable, and that's exactly who they're getting. I think the cohort of people who smoke today is younger than ever. So if you look at New Hampshire, you've got approximately 1,900 smoking-related deaths a year. How does that compare with motor vehicle deaths? Do you, and yet every one of those will be in the, in the front page or on the news. What would you say? Way more motor vehicle deaths? Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yes. And in fact, it's, it's, it's really more than 10 times as many. And yet those 128, they're sad. We could, we're all exposed to that. We could all go out on the highway. But that's what gets the attention. It's not the people who are dying slowly from cancer-related and other diseases from smoking. So the prevalence is actually higher than the national average in New Hampshire. And uh, if you look at where things fit, you know, I'm down in here. The motto of Alabama is, thank God for Mississippi. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not doing very well. And I don't think New Hampshire is doing extremely well, although you're in the next category. Um, and then just to summarize all the stuff with smoking, you know, it's now up to 480,000 deaths a year, one in every five deaths, uh, one in every three cancer deaths, um, all the fetal problems and so forth and the cost. But if you look at um, what we've tried to do about it, I want to do a little vote here. So this is what they call in this field called tobacco control. I remember when this term was invented, I thought this is horrible. It's like mosquito control. I don't want to control anybody. And I think this is our biggest mistake of calling things control. It's like tobacco control freaks. I don't think we should be, we should be allies of our patients and advocates and educators of what this product really is and shift the focus away from their guilt that they've been told all their life, oh, don't smoke, and onto the product. And yet, this is what we do. We tax them. We pretend to pass laws that prevent kids from getting them. We do clean and air laws, ad bans, mass media. Which do you feel there is the evidence to say that's actually worked? Anyone have a favorite on this list? Who would like to nominate one of these? Taxes. Taxes? Any, uh, we have two more nominees, and then we'll vote. Advertising, advertising bans, or advertising education? Yeah. Bans, OK. And what? Clean and do air. Okay, and why, just curious, why would you say that one? One by one, thank you. And you're saying that as a smoking cessation specialist too. And why would you say the ad bans were, were, uh, would be the leading factor? Mm -hmm. And how about taxes? Why would you say taxes would be the number one? A lot of people are very um, price sensitive, so the higher the taxes, the less. Yeah, I was I was coming out of New York's Penn Station, and I saw this long line at midnight, and it was it was a sneaker store. I didn't know what it was, and I, you know I didn't know whether to get on the line or what they were giving away. No, 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 no. It, the LeBron sneakers were coming out. The new ones were coming out, and and they were limited two for two hundred dollars. You couldn't buy more than two pairs for two hundred dollars. I mean, whatever the. And I'm thinking, gee, if we raise the price of LeBron sneakers another 20 bucks, I don't think that line would have been any less. So I'm not so certain. But that's, that's the, the philosophy is that if we raise the price, price-sensitive people are not going to be able to afford cigarettes. So let's vote. We have taxes, we have ad bans, and we have clean and air. So who would like to vote for uh, taxes as the leading uh, measure for reducing? Um, uh, so we have a good third of the audience. And how about ad bans, uh, banning the ads? Therefore, the, we have a, a nice size one. And what about clean and air laws? Uh, and yet that seems to carry the day, and that is, in my opinion, absolutely correct. When you can't smoke, you don't smoke. Go right ahead. If you walk down any New York City street, you might as well be in a smoking <laughs> parlor. Right. It's so funny because they've moved them outside now, and it's worse. In fact, there's a cartoon that says, let's go back inside and get some fresh air. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and when the Japanese owned everything in, in, in Manhattan, there was a cartoon that appeared, you know, because everybody's outside smoking, and these Japanese, you know, they were looking and said, oh, you have so many prostitutes, you know. But uh, it's, it's just, uh, I, I, think, I think the youth thing is, is important, but uh, it doesn't seem to have as big an impact, in my opinion, as clean and air laws. Taxes, I don't think, are as price sensitive as you've been led to believe. But in any event, med schools are a problem. They don't teach this issue because it's so intellectually simplistic. Oh, they do an OSCE where you learn, ask, assist, advise, arrange, whatever, and what do they have? What are the stages of change you're supposed to know? Pre-contemplation, right? We know that one. I'm not ready to stop smoking yet. And then you move them to the next one, which is contemplation. Okay, I'll think about it. What's the third one? Masturbation. You know, it doesn't, it's just, 
it's so stupid to make this a medical issue. This is not, this is common sense that we should all be doing, every one of us, even the custodian in the hallway. And yet we've made it too specialized. If you look at the leading causes of death and disease, there's only one thing that I've seen that they have in common. Uh, for instance, uh, heart disease and cholesterol is not related to cancer that we know of. And accidents would be fire. And diabetes is made so much worse by smoking. So I believe that the number one thing that they have in common is also the number one preventable cause of death and disease in our society. And the number one preventable cause of death and disease in our society is not smoking, it's not lung it's not emphysema. It's got to be the vocabulary that people are using when they go in and say, give me a pack of Marlboro. And I always say, you know, to the patient, I say, what brand do you buy? I, you know, you're a big truck driver, you already buy Eve or Misty or Virginia Slims or, and they look, no, what does he buy? He buys, Mar so then you quickly say Marlboro what? Marlboro lights, Marlboro medium lights, Marlboro menthol, Marlboro menthol lights, Marlboro leaded, Marlboro unleaded. I mean, there are how many Marlboros in the United States? See who's been looking at the, at the CVS pharmacies that up until a year ago sold cigarettes. How many Marlboros are there? There's over 40 different Marlboros that you could get in the United States as of now. In the world, there are over 220 different permutations of Marlboro. And so this one, for instance, that a patient handed me in Tuscaloosa, Alabama was interesting. I'd never seen this before. Because I, I always say, can, I, can you give me your cigarettes? And he said, sure, take it. What is this? Rush. Is it Russian? Is it a Ukrainian or Russian? Some people say it's, it's Russian. Okay. And it's some warning. Where does he get this in Tuscaloosa? The internet. So he gets his cigarettes cheaper than going down to the BP station to buy them. So, so much for taxes. Sorry about that, you know, again. Um, so here's the New York Times, the vaunted New York Times, with coronary heart disease on the front cover, selling a pack of risk factors on the back. Now, granted, that's 1975. But when do you think, now the Surgeon's Report came out in 64, when did the New York Times say, okay, we don't think we should take any more cigarette ads? We've stopped taking gun ads and X-rated movie ads many years ago. So when did they decide they weren't going to take cigarette ads, which actually kill people? 1999. The same year that Philip Morris acknowledged that smoking, yeah, I guess it does cause lung cancer. The New York Times is not our friend on this issue. Never was, never is. They still take corporate ads for Philip Morris for the art exhibitions that they sponsor. But what we fail to do is to educate the public about heart effect of smoking. I call it Marlboro's myocardial mayhem because it's this, this depriving the, the, the myocardium of oxygen. And then the other effect is on the arteries themselves. It's believed in some circles that the deposition of cholesterol plaque is a kind of cancer. So I don't know whether that theory is still current, but cardiovascular uh, atherosclerotic heart disease is considered in some people's belief a kind of cancer of the arteries. And you, you can trace it to the deposition of fibrinogen and whatever else goes on that lays down the cholesterol plaque through smoking. Smoking accelerates that. So here is a typical abnormal x-ray. You could see this obvious abnormality. But what about this little? Now, I know that low-dose CTs supposedly will do some things. But I think there are too many cell divisions, even in that dot, to survive. Millions and millions of cell divisions. But this is what people are still debating, whether to do low-dose CTs. And I think if you look at the numbers, it's what, 292 to save a life and detected earlier. And then for every 1,000 you screen, you're going to give a cancer. So somewhere in between 292 and 1,000, you know. I don't know. I don't recommend low-dose CT for, I don't believe in the guidelines, not from my personal experience. I think the false positives are not worth the, the stress and grief and aggravation. But, you know, it may be uh, something that I'm not supposed to say because those are the at least one guideline. So I used to say, this is the good lung on the left and the bad lung on the right. Somebody quietly, politely said, you know, that lung is also not in the patient. So it may be not such a good <laughs> lung. But you get the idea. The high school kids get to get scared by this. And I don't show many scary slides, because I don't think that's going to do anything. But here's your lung cancer and then the anthracotic staining, which could have come from almost anything. But the, level, the prevalence of lung cancer in Iowa is the same as in urban New York. It's the same. And the only factor that's the same is cigarette smoking. So here's your thoracotomy scar, the survivor there. But look at these horrible statistics where the lung cancer death rate among men is three times higher than the next leading cause of cancer and nearly double in women the next leading cause of cancer. And we knew this. The good news among men is that cancer rates are coming down in almost all cancers, especially lung cancer, as men stop smoking. 
But among women, unfortunately, we know now that more cases of lung cancer are being identified in women each year than in men. We've known this. And we've known that breast cancer has been surpassed by lung cancer since 1986. The tumor registry in Connecticut and in Texas discovered this, but who listened? Cosmo didn't listen, and Ms. Magazine didn't listen. Ms. Magazine, with its annual health issue, with a cigarette ad on the back of it. And Gloria Steinem, who I asked, why do you do this? Why would you still have cigarette ads in a health issue or anywhere in your magazine? She said, well, you don't want us to publish? That was her response. No hero, in my opinion. So, you know, this is where we are. And uh, this is emphysema. You can see the holes there that aren't more like normal lung out there. And unfortunately, people with emphysema are very dangerous people. Um, uh, you can't go into a Walmart without looking very carefully down each aisle before you get run over. I mean, it's, it's just terrible. They speed down with their, I don't know. But I only joke about that because I have, a, I have a patient who said that he had some joy in his life with emphysema, and that was going to his grandchildren's birthday pool parties because they would play bobbing for grandpa. You know, he, would, he couldn't sink. You know, they'd push him down, he'd bob right back up because his, his lungs were inner tubes. There was nothing left, and he couldn't sink. And he did say, though, what it's like to have emphysema is something that you should tell all your patients, and that is like holding your breath and going underwater till you can't breathe anymore, and then coming back up and having someone push you right back down. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The worst disease, to my mind, smoking-related, is emphysema. 5% of the population, now well over 80% caused by smoking, and it's the fourth leading cause of death. If you look at diabetes, you have threefold mortality in just having the diagnosis, but when you smoke and have diabetes, it's 11-fold. Same thing with asbestos. If you work with asbestos, you have a three to six-fold risk of asbestos lung cancer. If you work with asbestos and smoke, it's 81-fold. So I asked a patient with asbestosis one time, didn't you wear a mask? He said, hell no, you couldn't smoke if you wore a mask, you know. And because what that does is the reason why you see borreliosis and asbestosis and all these other diseases, industrial diseases, is that the cigarette is like a, a vacuum cleaner that sucks up all the fibers as well. So I could go on all day with all the other diseases, but if the ophthalmologist would see macular degeneration, related to this, it's just astounding. It's probably easier to write the diseases that are not caused by smoke or related. And one would be ulcerative colitis, which has a, a, the other association. Everything changed when the secondhand smoke data came out in the early 1980s by Hiriyama in Japan and Trichopoulos in Greece, who studied mostly women who had worked or been in families where a male spouse smoked uh, or co-workers smoked. And they discovered that not only was smoking related to bad things in, in their health, but specifically lung cancer. And over 3,000 cases of lung cancer have been identified per year in the United States attributable to so-called secondhand smoke or passive smoking or involuntary smoking. Truly frightening. It's the second leading cause of cancer outside of smoking. So secondhand smoke is, I always love the, the ads for radon. Have you seen the ads for radon? The, the, uh, radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer. I, I personally, I don't know whether I've ever seen someone who died of lung cancer. How would we know? And yet, you know, the government was spending more to educate us about radon than it was about smoking throughout the 1980s and 1990s. Um, this is really the problem in, in the state of Washington. Parents have actually been removed from their children who have kept coming back in with status asthmaticus because they would not stop smoking and the kids just were revolving doors in the emergency rooms. I hate to talk to a parent and suggest, my God, that the sudden infant death syndrome was related. But unfortunately, the data do look as though all of these conditions, and many more in pregnancy, are related to smoking. It's, it's astounding how they increase the odds. And how did the tobacco industry respond to the uh, known fact that smoking retards uh, fetal weight? Uh, they simply responded by saying, well, some women uh, find uh, smaller babies easier to deliver, and they prefer that. And that was their actual in-print answer to the whole notion of fetal immaturity and, and, and a lack of weight gain. So here's your million-dollar babies. And um, it's astounding what little prevention we could be doing that we're not. I know everyone here does, but I hope you'll get the message out to med students especially. But this is not an intellectually simplistic issue. This is life and death. And we don't take it seriously in the medical school environment. Uh, and and it's, just, it's, it's just not there. Um, we, we blame peer pressure and we do parents. It, it took a long time for people to begin looking at propaganda like Joe Camel and realizing that that was having, as you say, a direct impact 
on, on youth. And this was from New York City where you had like a 10-story building, the largest billboard I ever saw. And I, I actually paid this guy who owned this billboard up on a building on 42nd Street. I paid him 50 bucks to let me climb up. on. I don't like heights. And I'm looking down, and, and it's a million pedestrians were seeing this every day in New York City. And I didn't even come up to the O in the Marlboro. I mean, that's how huge these loomed over everybody. And this was Marlboro gear. You can still see these uh, jackets. It's, uh, you can get coupons uh, in your Marlboro uh, uh, packages and submit them and get uh, gear. It's called youth marketing. Get them while they're young. And uh, this is the Philip Morris Company today. They've since bought Skoll in Copenhagen and Marlboro. And they have Marlboro Snus, which is a, uh, like a smokeless that you can put in and don't have to spit. So you could be doing this now, and we wouldn't notice this if you were a school student. And they make a black and mild cigar. So they get the whole nicotine spectrum. And now they're making electronic cigarettes as well. This is from their website, Marlboro When You Want It. Um, this is from uh, Skoll at Rice University about 10 years ago when Dr. Gaze and I were in Houston, a little longer than that, but 1998. Um, and this was the George Strait Country Music Festival where people were lined up. In the background there is the Texas Medical Center, and they were getting their free samples of Skoll right across the street from the Texas Medical Center. This is a, in front of a fraternity house at the University of Alabama five years ago where 92,000 people came out of a football game and saw the Skoll uh, advertised there. This is 19-year-old Sean Marcy, who was a track star in Oklahoma, who after seven years of using Copenhagen developed this oral cancer and refused to be uh, mutilated on, wouldn't have the surgery. He died uh, at 19 from oral cancer. Obviously an extreme example, but a real one. This was the kind of oral cancer that he had. But kids don't make the connection. They're not going to make the connection. This is a very, it's, I think it's harder to talk about uh, smokeless tobacco than it is about cigarettes. Uh, uh, this is Goran Van Bruin, he was a cowboy in Wyoming. He goes all over the United States talking to high school students about what happened to him. He never used cigarettes, he only used oral tobacco, and this was the mutilating procedure that resulted in saving his life, but that's what he looks like. So this is Philip Morris, the makers of all these wonderful products. This is who they are. Check your TIAA CREF uh, um, you know, receipt this year, if you're a member as I am in your pension fund, to see how many millions of shares uh, TIA CREF owns in, uh, in Philip Morris, and they do own sizable amounts. Universities have not divested their tobacco stocks. So we're all part of this. And it's a great, if you have no conscience, it's a great investment, by the way. They're at their record profit levels. So Philip Morris wants to do the right thing. They supported regulation by the FDA that Dr. Kazel and I worked ardently against because we knew what would happen. That the industry, why would the industry support it? Because they knew that they would be able to put twist Congress around their finger, which is exactly what they've done for six years. They promote harm reduction. That sounds better than death and disease. They fund universities. They align with society. That's one of my favorite phrases. And they have moved their headquarters overseas. So they're practically immune from liability. These are some other companies that are allies or have been. These are past allies. That's right, Pfizer, which makes Chantix in the 1980s and 90s owned the world's largest cigarette flavorings company. Kodak, which makes mammograph equipment, also made all the cigarette filters in the United States. It's now since sold off to a different company. Kimberly Clark, surgical gowns and cigarette paper. 3M, the largest billboard company in the United States in the 1980s and 90s. The leading client of 3M was uh, the tobacco industry for their billboards. And it goes on and on. I included the New York Times. And this is one today. If you've had blood work or ordered blood work lately, it went through a Siemens machine or a urine analysis, or how about an MRI or a CT scanner made by Siemens, which advertises itself as a healthy company. They didn't tell you, though, that they also make the world's fastest cigarette-making machines. And this is the website that they have. You could go on this today and see the same thing, an ideal match for tobacco processing and cigarette production from Siemens. Uh, this is their tobacco industry division. And there's all sorts of windows that you can look at. This is a typical plant that they advise on. They talk about in one of their brochures how they have advised the Chinese tobacco monopoly, Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, British American Tobacco, into producing tens of billions of cigarettes a year, thanks to the advances that Siemens has made. And Siemens was a sponsor this past year of Stand Up to Cancer. So when I wrote a, an op-ed column on this, just simply pointing out all of these companies uh, that have been involved with uh, the tobacco industry. Um, 
Siemens and uh, the other, uh, CVS was a sponsor, and others, Condé Nast, which has all sorts of magazines which take cigarette ads. The op-ed was not accepted by the New York Times or the Washington Post. It did make it into the Birmingham News, but you get the point. No one's going to bite the hand that feeds them, even today. And uh, this is our pension fund. Time Incorporated still has full-page cigarette ads in Sports Illustrated almost every issue. University of Virginia got $30 million from Philip Morris not long ago for cigarette studies. Walgreens still sells cigarettes. Diversity Inc., which is uh, an amazing minority publication that basically names top companies. And guess which companies seem to always make their list? Philip Morris is one of their top companies. I think they say because they've got good childcare or something. But the fact that they make cigarettes doesn't really count. The Kennedy Center, one of the leading recipients of tobacco cultural sponsorships. And this is still going on as we speak. So you go back to a college campus in the 1940s and you'd see this wonderful image of the co-ed and the letterman. What about today? Philip Morris is on 35 university campuses, as close as Boston College at Syracuse, trying to recruit the next generation of tobacco sales territory marketers. So you can graduate from the University of Alabama this year and pull down the highest salary probably of almost any major corporation and get a free car or a van to go place cigarettes in the poorest uh, areas of the state with the least educated and poorest population. And um, this is the typical booth that they have at college career fairs because, you know, it's hard to get a job out of college. And this would be a typical snippet of my interview with one of the college reps for Philip Morris. Are you looking for the best and the brightest to, to in the retail area now in the territories? I mean, is that really obviously you know, you're not yes. looking for dogs? We, right. We're. What do you mean for our consumers, or you yeah. mean for recruiting purposes? For, are you looking to recruit folks that are going to out there and really be in love with the product and, and and sell it and say, you know, people have a free choice and yet I'm. No, I'm, no. We are looking for kids. Part of our mission is being responsible, effective, and respected. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what we are doing is we're looking for people that can handle the responsibility of marketing a product that causes harm. And in that means being responsible. It means making sure your accounts know to card everybody that comes to the store. Wouldn't it means making sure that you don't put tobacco products on your counters mm -hmm. so that children, it's at eye level for children. Those are the things that we try to do to be responsible. It goes on. I have 22 minutes on tape with her. And for that, I was hauled before the Institutional Review Board at the University of Alabama for violating human research subjects protocol for not getting written permission for all the people, including the college students that I interviewed at the career fair in the journalism school. They want public relations graduates, they want business graduates, they want debaters, they want athletes, they want women, and that's who they get. And uh, it's astounding. It took a lot. You know, that trumps tenure. So if you're taking a tenured endowed chair and holding before the Institutional Review Board, the Institutional Review Board would not meet because I had been a member of the IRB. And uh, they said, this is crazy. This is, this is bad. And so we had to all save face. And I promised I would never go and do that again. But we have it all on tape. And uh, it's back, too. If you think some of the synthetic marijuana is bad, too, just look at cigarettes. It's back. It's part of the social scene. They call it social smoking. So we haven't really triumphed in the very cohort, the very age group that we really needed to. And now we have, even better, the electronic cigarette, which is the, pro the single most controversial aspect of all smoke. I get questions every day from patients and from colleagues. Nobody knows what to do with this. So you have, on one extreme, you have the people who want to ban this, such as the FDA, which hasn't done anything to do anything about Marlboro. So they're spending more time going after e-cigarettes than they are after Marlboro. And you have, on the other extreme, people saying, well, this could be good for smoking cessation. I happen to be slightly moved to the latter camp because I read 130 articles in preparation for a grand rounds on e-cigarettes. And although the data are not definitive, I think the preliminary data look very good. Even in a mentally ill population, people have been able to stop smoking and switch to electronic cigarettes. So what you have is an atomizer that you uh, trigger by inhaling. And that causes a, uh, uh, a release of the vapor which is actually glycerol with flavor and with nicotine in various strengths. And the vape shops are a little different. The vape shops can give you, you know, various strengths of nicotine. Um, and uh, so it's a fascinating, they have 4,000 flavors and such. And people say, oh, they've got candy flavoring, so they're going after kids. That's nonsense, you know. They go after kids in so many ways that just to single out the flavoring, it's as if to say that no adult also wants those same candy flavorings. So I'm not going to buy into this notion that e-cigarettes are being aimed at children. I don't think that they are. 
these are the different kinds you can get. Um, the kind that I smoke is, no, actually, <laughs> I did bring one, though, just in case uh, we'd want to light up. But uh, it's, uh, it's called Enjoy. And uh, this has 400 hits. And uh, you know it, it lights up like a cigarette. And you get a little taste of nicotine and flavor. And you can blow very slightly. You probably can't see it, but a little water vapor. That's all it is. And the, the, the ones that the kids can get in uh, the, the, the head shops or the vapor shops have these mods that supercharge and really heat up the vapor. So they have vaping contests now to blow the biggest cloud of white <laughs> vapor. And that's the kind that you see here. But these are the ones that are marketed now by Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds. Vu's by R.J. Reynolds, Mark 10 by Philip Morris, and Blue by Lorillard. You'll see these on TV. I don't like the ads on TV, but we've missed this issue. The, the horse is out of the gate. The FDA blew it. And uh, I think they should be held accountable. This is a disgraceful administration. I'm sorry, I voted for it. But it's a disgraceful administration on this issue. It has done nothing other than get a law passed that has done absolutely nothing to reduce smoking in the last six years. So now we've got the big tobacco companies making e-cigarettes. And uh, you've seen these ads, you know, just discover your freedom, take back your freedom, and you know, appealing just, just like the old cigarette ads were. The New York Times saying without the stigma on the fashion pages. So you have, just to summarize today, you've got about the same number of people smoking 50 years ago. Most want to stop. 40% try each year, but only one in 20 succeeds. So what do you do? Let's shift the focus away from saying, uh, by the way, we see the reasons physicians aren't still talking about it. Half don't even, the patients say they never told me about it. And um, we still have 50% tobacco-related deaths on our wards. Um, we excuse ourselves by saying we don't have enough time, no reimbursement, no training, but those are all excuses. It doesn't take very long to do this. Um, we have all sorts of approaches. We don't feel efficacious, that's the problem. So instead of saying how, how much do you smoke or how long have you smoked, I say what brand do you buy and how much do you buy? Simple questions. And the most important question I ask is from Christakis's work on social marketing. In 2008, he published a paper called Obesity is a Contagious Disease. He looked at the Framingham Heart data and discovered that people who are obese, guess what? They hang out with other people who are obese. And people who stop smoking and stayed stop hang out with other people who stop smoking and stayed stop. So who do I, what do I say? Who among your family and friends has stopped smoking and stayed stopped? Hang out with them. It's a much better approach than just saying, here, take Chantix. Uh, it's a truly astounding thing that my typical resident encounter with a patient when they're calling the patient back, I actually heard this once. Oh, yes, that's right, you smoke. OK, here, well, I'll tell you what. I'll call you in this drug. It's called Chantix. And you call me back in 12 weeks and let me know how you did. That's it, a drug for every ill. So these are the markers I'd be concerned about. 20 cigarettes a day when you smoke as soon as you hit the ground. Mental illness is a direct call. We know that most of the cigarettes are sold by people, uh, to people who have mental Ill, uh, illnesses. Depression is a marker for smoking. And smoking, in my opinion, is a marker for depression. Uh, this is a very serious correlation. People who are alcoholic will always smoke. I've seen a lot of people who are tobaccoholic who don't, smoke, don't drink alcohol. But, um, I think it's important to look at everyone as an individual. There is no cookbook for this. You've got to show you care. A 14-year-old girl is not like a 50-year-old executive. What do you say to a 14-year-old girl? I do three lectures and it takes 10 seconds. First lecture is, <laughs> that's one. Um, they know what I'm talking about. Uh, or, I'm sorry, are your teeth that yellow? What? You're, in, you're in ninth grade and you still smoke? Come on, that's for the sixth graders. You know, those things are sort of cute, but they, they really get kids laughing and, and talking about the issue. But um, demythologize. What are the myths about smoking? That it reduces weight, that it takes off stress. That's nonsense. It's like burning down your house to have roast pig. You know that story? You know the, the kid playing with his matches and he burns down his house and he realizes that the pig, that his pet pig was in there. So he goes searching through the embers for his pet pig. And he sees it and he's all charred and roasted and he, and he touches it to pet it goodbye. And he, ooh, he burns his fingers and he licks it. It tasted so good that every time he wanted roast pig, he burned his house down. And that's pretty much the rationalization that you hear with smoking keeping weight loss. Smoking does not do that. A third lose weight, a third gain weight, a third remain the same. If you walk upstairs after eating, you will not be gaining weight. So I think that we've talked about the filter is a fraud, low tar is low, well, I call it carbon-rich anabolic products, or crap. Um, and what color is menthol? Green. Oh, of course not. That's just the color on the pack, because green is cool and refreshing, red is hot. 
Menthol is a clear, colorless anesthetic that's just like the dentist does with Novocaine. It deadens the throat to make you think it's cooler. So these are some of the things you can educate. Lights just means more sugar. I've shifted the focus away from uh, the person onto the product. I use a little fear. I do show the x-rays. I look at all the dastardly, horrible effects of smoking on fertility and other things. I talk about the benefits, though, and, and the benefits of stopping smoking. Uh, in just one day, your sudden death risk goes way down. That's not a bad thing to know about. And um, the cosmetic benefits. And looking, we talked about the money lost, the inhalation count that I calculated, and uh, little tips, uh, relaxation. I've applied the Benson response for blood pressure lowering to smoking cessation. Just relax for five minutes, postpone each cigarette. Think about a nice thought, a prayer, a song, what have you. Simple relaxation. Then, of course, you have the drugs. And as you can tell, not only do I not have any conflict of interest, I don't prescribe these things unless patients grab me by the neck and say, I need a drug. And that's what the consumer demand has been generated by, by Pfizer and by Glaxo. They want everybody to have a drug in their hand when they're trying to stop smoking, and that is not true. If you look at the placebo, if you look at the control portion of those studies, the control group did better than most intervention studies. They had a very good intervention uh, group there. They had a lot of support, and it's the support such as that you are providing your patients in your program that is far better than any medication. So, I, I do think that these are things, too, to keep in mind. Relapse prevention, uh, that's where we get to the social support system. There are quit lines that have some question of validity, but I think giving patients a number as a support line would be good. And just hey, to conclude. Phyllis, I thought you quit smoking. This is you were going to be my inspiration. Not anymore. Now I can smoke as much as I like. Now that I got the lung brush. Lung brush? That's right. Lung brush. Created by a small inventor in California who himself enjoyed smoking, Lungbrush is the easy, inexpensive alternative to quitting or cutting down. Here's how it works. Taking hold of the easy grip handle, slide the gentle bristle device past the tracheal opening, back down the windpipe, and into the lung itself. The unique lung brush design allows you to remove caked on tar, smoke particles, even city smog phlegm. Freeing up clogged bronchial passages so vital for breathing and smoking. And lung brush's sturdy design makes cleaning and maintenance a snap. One lung brush may be the only lung brush you'll ever need. Here's football great Kenny Stabler. I threw my light and low tar cigarettes away. Now back to my favorite brand again. Thanks, lung brush. Time to come to bed, dear. <coughs> Don't forget to brush. Lung brush, that is. So get into the lung brush habit today and smoke to your heart's content. Lung brush is available wherever quality tobacco products are sold. Only $14.95 from Life Tool. Well, I thought you'd get a kick out of that. Uh, sometime when I get a chance to come back, we'll talk about Doc or the group that I started, but I really would appreciate your taking the time to stay a, a minute or so over. And if there are questions and comments, I'd welcome. I did warn you that my talk was going to be hazardous to your preconceptions, and I hope I succeeded. But uh, I'd like your ideas and your thoughts, criticisms, and comments as well. So have at it. Oh, we do have time. Oh, I got another third. No. Yeah. Well, that one's a little slower. Than oh, so good. I'll go by that. Okay. <laughs> Any Great. questions? Or personal experiences. Comments. Or criticisms, or things you didn't believe, or things that you would do. Anybody here have experience with medications for smoking? Or so, are you troubled by, so, inasmuch as you're enthusiastic about the possibility that by the fact that the big tobacco companies are marketing in, in the same way that they do cigarettes and could actually, their stocks could go up. Very troubled by that. I think that's what bothers me that they, well, I don't think they're going to make a whole lot of money off. If you look at how much it costs to make an e-cigarette, my colleague Greg Connolly is convinced it's not a viable economic model. So if these are parts and these, bad for the landfill too, by the way. But uh, the, the, it's a very clever opportunity to give people a choice of, of which nicotine product they want. Uh, we were wrong about certain things in the, 19, in the 2000s. We were wrong about snus. Snus was a, a, a smokeless product that you just put here. You don't have to uh, spit. And it just didn't catch on. The Swedish experience suggested that uh, this was a way to get people off cigarettes because they have the lowest lung cancer rate in Europe. 
but there's more data that's come out that said that's not necessarily why. So my point is, number one, I like the notion that the companies are at least paying lip service to alternative forms other than combustible tobacco products. I'm very troubled by the marketing because I think it could go two ways. You could get kids to take it up and then graduate to cigarettes. I don't think we know the answers to that. And I also am very troubled by e-cannabis. I'm, uh, I'm in the minority here. I don't think that what Colorado has done is a smart move. They might have done it in a few years, but right now they open the floodgates to a marijuana marketing that has led to the product called e-cannabis. And you could be doing an e-cigarette right now, and I wouldn't know whether it was an e-cannabis because the odor has been removed. So I was told when I went to a vape shop that there are people at the University of Alabama campus who are doing e-cannabis as we speak. So if you don't mind people getting high and getting behind the wheel, you know, that's your thing. But to me, I think it's, it's another concern I have about the e-products. Um, overall, though, given that um, th there's no question that they do not have the morbidity and mortality that cigarettes do, I'd much rather have people smoking an e-cigarette than a regular cigarette. That would be my... So, we're, you know, no answers are in, but I'm still sticking with the e-cigarette because I call it the, the battle between the sanctimonious that want to ban everything and the, and the self-righteous that say, come on, this is, this is harm reduction. I don't like either of those. But I'm a little bit more confident that the data so far look as though the harm, harm reduction proponents have a better case. And so another question. Did, um, do you think that the behavior of the tobacco industry marketing these harmful products despite knowing their harms is really any different than the behavior of the alcohol industry or the food industry or the pharmaceutical industry My specialty is looking at the, to, and, uh, at, the, at the tobacco control issue. I, as far as I know, I'm the only one that's looked at both sides straight down the middle. As much as I'm an anti-smoking advocate, I'm not at all proud of the so-called tobacco control movement. Right now, this will answer the question a bit long-winded. Right now, there are the, the Federal Drug, Food and Drug Administration has given out $250 million. We'll, we'll be giving out a total of $250 million for 14 centers of excellence. That may even apply next door in Vermont. There's one there. Um, five years, five, uh, $4 million a year for five years, $20 million for 14 centers of tobacco regulatory science. I don't know what that means. What can you do with $5 million to study regulatory science for five years. I think uh, the money does come from the tobacco industry, just like the pharmaceutical companies have to pay to have their drugs evaluated by the FDA. The tobacco companies now are paying the FDA for all this stuff. I think it's nonsense. I think it's a waste of time. And I think I have as much sympathy for the tobacco companies now as I do for the anti-smoking people, because there's no grassroots anti-smoking activity anymore. It's all been co-opted for research that's not going to show anything that we don't already know. So do I have trouble with, with, do I think it's any worse? I don't now think that what the tobacco companies are doing is any worse than the alcohol industry. I think the alcohol companies are getting away with far more because kids are dying from alcohol in their teens and in their 20s. People who die from smoking don't generally, unless they immolate themselves, die until much later on in life. And I think another issue that's not gotten the attention, although I did see it in the Dartmouth magazine, is the tanning bed industry, which is so scary because you have the people using them are young women uh, who are the most vulnerable population from melanoma, they're already getting enough sun, and now they're basically, I mean, it's, so I, I actually put tobacco about third after alcohol and tanning beds. Um, we're going to start uh, a group called, uh, uh, well, it's going to have tanning beds and cigarettes, and it's going to be called Sun and Smoke. <laughs> and, and then in about 10 years, when we make our fortune, I think I'll give it up, like CVS decided last year to finally give up cigarettes, and, and I'll probably get an award. Uh, but that's how it works. Um, <laughs> The, here's one little story. I got a letter from the American Academy of Dermatology from the president, and he said, congratulations on your crusade against tanning beds. And I said, I, I wrote two letters to the editor that appeared in the University of Alabama newspaper saying, please don't take tanning bed ads. And he, they sent me, and I checked, it was a real signature, it was a personal letter. And they said, if you would like to be on our speakers bureau, we would love to have you, please contact us. So I called right away and I said, I would love to be part of your speakers bureau to, to rage war against tanning beds. They said, great, we'll send you a whole speaker's packet, and this is terrific. And I never got anything. So I called him up about two months later. I said, I never got anything. He said, well, we found out you're not a dermatologist. You're a family doctor. 
And I, I, but I, I said, what difference? No, we only have dermatology. I said, okay, fine. And then I started watching the American Academy of Dermatology. Why were they so up in arms about tanning beds? You'd think for the same reason all of the rest of us were. No, 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 no. Think back to the Obama administration's health care bill. What did they want to put a tax on? They wanted to put a tax on cosmetic surgery. So the American Academy of Dermatology, because they're so concerned about tanning beds, shifted that tax onto the tanning bed people and away from themselves for their own cosmetic surgery. So I'm not a big fan of the American Academy of Dermatology at the moment, <laughs> but rather cynical, I, I, but I did warn you. And I think that's the thing. The tobacco issue is a no-brainer. It's a gut. We all ought to be a part of it. If our universities hold shares in it, we ought to write a letter to the trustees and say, come on. I mean, this is killing a third of the people with cancer. I mean, that's the divestment movement has just failed because people didn't do that. And uh, we all go home, most of us at least, with a paycheck that at least comes in part from tobacco profits. So again, I could probably relate anything to tobacco, but I, I'm glad you, brought it, you broadened it to other corrupt industries too. So we'll, we'll tackle that another time. But thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you.